Father, we just take a second, and it's sad that we take a second, to just rest in You. Father, I know that what You're challenging me to do in my life is something that You're probably speaking to many of us about. How many times did you tell the disciples, come apart and rest for a while? How many times were you seen, just in the three years we have recorded of your life, off alone? Just spending time with the Father in prayer, resting. Thank you for the fact that we see you asleep on the pillow in the midst of the storm. Father, help us to really understand that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And that rest is supposed to be a part of who we are and how we live our lives. It's a picture of us resting in You, in Your work, Your finished work on the cross, the power of Your resurrection. Lord, tonight we're going to deal with some tough stuff. We're going to deal with you speaking to the church in Sardis, and it becomes very clear there are those in the church in Sardis that don't know you. You're going to deal, show us tonight about this being blotted out of the book of life and what that actually means. So, Father, tonight, as we open your word, speak to our hearts and help us to see these truths from you, not from Jim. Thank you for your word and thank you for being alive. Lord, we thank you that your spirit is here, not only in us but wooing those in this world who don't know You. So, Father, may we just rest in the fact that Your Word will not return void. It will accomplish everything You set out for it to accomplish. All You ask us to do is just read it, study it, take it to heart. And so, Father, what You desire to accomplish through tonight's study, what do You desire to do in each of our lives, may it take root and may it manifest itself in rest. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 3. We read them last week, but we're going to read them again. It says to the angel, remember, or the messenger in the church in Sardis, right? These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds, and you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains, and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. We're going to stop here. Uh, for those of you that are listening right now on the computer, um, don't panic. You haven't thought you've heard last week's lesson because <laughs> of the fact that we're reading the same passage again. There's, there's some things that God, as I kind of continue to pray over this, showed me that I really felt like we need to deal with. Look at what Jesus says to the church in Sardis. He says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. And then He tells them to wake up. And when I saw those words, wake up, it reminded me of another place where the church was told to wake up in the Scripture. So put a bookmark here. Go to Romans chapter 13. In Romans chapter 13, look at verses 11 through 14. says, and do this, understanding the present time, the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. 
So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Here, when Paul's writing to the church, remember we did our study of Romans, he says to him, it's time for him to wake up because the time of our salvation is nearer than we first believed. But look at what he says. He says, the day is almost here. So we need to deal with this question. What is the day that he's talking about? I'm sorry? Okay, and, the, and that actually is the right answer, but we need to clarify when, what we mean by His return. When you see the day here, it's talking about the return of Jesus Christ. Now, if we automatically jump to the rapture, thinking that's the return of Jesus Christ, you're going to have a problem. Because how long ago did Paul write this? <laughs> Almost 2,000 years ago, a little less than 2,000 years ago, this was written that he says, uh, the hour has come for us to wake up, and the day is almost here. Um, it's been almost 2,000 years since he wrote that. Now, scripturally though, the day is, a lot of times when he's talking to Christians, is the return of Jesus Christ. But we've got to clarify that, because it's, this will help you a lot when you study the scripture and deal with some of these things. What, what did Jesus say in John chapter 14 to the believers, to the disciples? He said, I'm going away. He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. If you believe in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, I, wouldn't have, I would have told you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will what? I will come back and take you to be with me so you can be where I am. Now, there's an interesting... I remember one time a lady at First Baptist in the Atlantic asked me, well, why does it say, if I prepare a place for you? Well, the reason he says, if I prepare a place for you, is he's not preparing a place for everybody. But if he prepares a place for you, he promises that he will come back and get you. Now, this is extremely important that you understand this so that it will lay the foundation for where we're going to go when we deal with blotting your name out of the book of life. But Jesus told his disciples, he told all of us, that if he prepares a place for us, he himself will come back and get us so that He can take us to be with Him. We know at the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18, Jesus Himself, when He comes to gather the church, is going to come in the clouds and we're all going to be caught up. Those of us who are alive, those who have already gone to be with Him are going to be with Him. Their body's going to come out of the ground at that time. But Jesus Himself will come get us. And I want you to understand then that the day of the Lord could happen today and I might not be talking about the rapture. It's whenever you go, it's the day of the Lord. If you're a child of God, right? If, if you die apart from Christ, it's not the day of the Lord. That's just the day you go to hell. It's the day you go to a place the Bible describes as Hades, a place of fiery torment, to wait there in torment until the final judgment, which we'll get to in Revelation chapter 20, where all those who are in Hades are going to come out of Hades and they're going to stand before the throne of God in the great white throne judgment. And only unbelievers will be at that judgment. He's going to judge them according to what's been written and recorded in the books, and everything is recorded in the books. And then their names will be checked against the Lamb's Book of Life, and if their name's not in the Lamb's Book of Life, which everybody at that point won't be, they're then cast into Gehenna, or the Lake of Fire, for an eternal punishment. So, if someone were to die today apart from Christ, that's not the day of the Lord. Not for them. That's just, the, the day of the Lord for them is coming another day. But for believers, the day of the Lord is His return. It could be for you individually, or it could be the rapture of the church. So Paul wasn't mistaken when he said to them, the time is close. 
He actually was just talking most likely. Remember, early church believed the return of Christ could happen ever, anytime in their, in, their, in their lifetime. And that's one of the further evidences of the, of the, the importance of understanding a pre-tribulational rapture of the church is it always has been taught, it's always been understood in Scripture, that it could happen at any time. For it to happen at any time, it has to happen before that last seven-year period for the nation of Israel, which we'll get into later in this study. So what I want you to understand is, it says that, that the, Jesus told Sardis, though, go back to Sardis now in Revelation 3, He told them that the day would catch them by surprise if they didn't wake up. You see what He says? He says, but if you don't wake up, the end of verse 3, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. So that means if you are awake, you have an inkling. Yes, we will get to that. And I'm going to show you lots of places in Scripture where those who are walking with the Lord, looking for His return, knew, not the day or the hour, but they knew the season of when they were going to go to be with Him. Those of us who are walking with Him, who love Him, are living our lives in obedience to Him, Looking for His return, I believe the Bible teaches He gives you a heads up. And that doesn't just mean the rapture. It could be your individual return is what it's saying. So, but right here, He says to them, but if you don't wake up, and He's talking to those who aren't believers in the church, He says, I'll come like a thief. So we've got to deal with something now. We've got, we've got an issue that's throughout Scripture that if you don't understand, it's going to make it hard for you to, under, to interpret. Alright, Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, went up on a mountainside, spent all night in prayer, and he comes down after a full night in prayer, and he gathers the disciples. Now again, keep in mind, when I talk about the disciples, I'm not talking about just the twelve. Throughout the Scriptures, the Bible teaches that Jesus always had more than just the twelve with him. Um, unfortunately, whenever we see Jesus and the disciples, we only picture the twelve. That's a low one right there. So. <laughs> So what happens, though, is... Let me just kind of reference a few. If you want to write them down and look at them later on, you can. In Luke chapter 8, verses 1 and following, the Scripture says there were some women that followed along with Jesus and the disciples, supporting the disciples out of their own means. And it lists a few of them. So there were some women that traveled with Jesus a lot, and maybe all the time. Uh, we also see in Acts chapter 1, starting in verses 15 and following, that... Um, Paul, um, Peter stands up right there in the upper room after Jesus ascended, before the day of Pentecost, and he said, hey, Scripture says that Judas's place has to be replaced. So we need to find, choose from among us, someone that has been with us the whole time. He literally says from the time that he was baptized until the time that he was ascended. And there were two men in that number of 120 that had been with him the whole time. We'd never heard of them before that passage because they weren't one of the twelve. We also see, uh, have you ever seen the painting of the, Lord, the Last Supper? Have you ever seen it? How many people do you see in that painting? It's just Jesus and the Twelve. It's Jesus and the Twelve, remember? But there were more there. There had to have been more there for a lot of reasons. One is, one of the Gospel accounts shows us that when Jesus is arrested in the garden, this young man was grabbed, most likely to believe it was John Mark, and he ran naked out of his clothes. Well, how did John Mark end up in the garden? unless he was in the upper room with them as they left there to go to the garden to pray. We also see that in that upper room there waiting for the return of Jesus Christ was a number of 120. In John chapter 6, Jesus is teaching, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And then in verse 60 of chapter 6, it says that many disciples were disturbed by this and they stopped following Jesus. 
And then he turns to the twelve and says, hey, are you guys going to go too? There must have been more. All the way through Scripture, there were always more. So interestingly enough, in this one story in, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus spends all night in prayer. He comes down from the mountain, and usually when he spent a long time in prayer, the Father has just told him something important, and he does something pretty powerful at that time. He gathers the disciples, and he designates twelve to be apostles. And then that Scripture lists them for us. And Judas, after a full night in prayer, was one of the ones that Jesus chose to be an apostle. Was Jesus mistaken about Judas? I mean, is there a chance that Jesus just didn't know his character? No. I mean, we know, hopefully understand, Jesus is God. There isn't anything catches him by surprise. You know, when they went and got Nathaniel to be a disciple, he... He said, I saw you when you were under the tree. You know, because Nathaniel was questioning whether anything good could come out of Nazareth. And Jesus described where he was and what he was doing when he was called. And the guy was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty impressive. There isn't anything he doesn't know. So he wasn't fooled by Judas. Actually, later on, he said that Judas was never one of them from the beginning. Then why did Jesus choose Judas? There's a purpose. I'd give you at least two. One, Scripture had to be fulfilled. Scripture had said that one of their number was going to betray Him. The second reason is even more important, I think, in this sense. It's to teach us something that all throughout the Scriptures you're going to see is that among us, there are going to be those who claim to be of us, but they're not. And there's a lesson in that. Throughout Scripture, you're going to see whenever God is dealing with what we would think a passage to Christians, there'd be a passage in there that looks like, well, it seems like he's talking to people that are lost. That's because he also knows that there are the Judases, if you will. That's why in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and following, it says they went out from us, but they never really belonged to us. Because if they belonged to us, they would have stayed. But their going out shows that they never really belonged. And the Bible teaches that in the parable of the soils, after Jesus taught the parable of the soils, the disciples came and could you explain it to us? And, and Jesus said, if you don't understand this parable, how can you understand any parable? There's a key in the parable of the soils that will help you understand all the parables. The key in the parable of the soils is this. Some seed fell on the, rocky, on the hard path, was totally rejected, never even responded to. Some seed fell on the rocky soil, what happened? It sprung up. It looked like salvation. But then trouble came. The sun beat it. And it withered because it had no root. It wasn't a real conversion. Then there's some seed fell on the thorny soil and it sprung up and sure looked like salvation, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth choked it and it produced no fruit and it died. But then the seed fell on the good soil and it produced a crop. And here's the thing. How are we ever going to really know whether or not any of us are truly born again? Is it because you prayed a prayer? Better not go down that road. Is it because you were baptized? No. How does the Bible teach that we will know whether or not someone is really saved? By their fruit. By their fruit. love one for another. And listen, over a long period of time. See, there's a difference between someone that does something that looks like might be fruit, but it's over a long period of time. When the troubles of this world come, and they do, do they go away? Or do they stick? Many of us could talk about people we know if we've been in church over the, any period of time. I knew this one couple and man, they were on fire and they don't even believe anymore. Probably something happened like they lost a child or something happened that they thought, you know what, 
um, they're disappointed with God and they turn their back. Or we know those who, because of wealth and the things of this world, all of a sudden that became more important and they went away. And that's why throughout the book of Revelation, why does Jesus say, to him who overcomes, to him who stands firm to the end, the only way we'll ever really know is through a long period of time and fruit being produced. Don't judge the one-time wonder. It's over time that you'll be proven to be His. So among us, there are going to be those who aren't. That in mind, that helps you understand why a lot of times it looks like He's saying things to people who aren't saved, and we start to wonder if they, did they lose their salvation. No, the Bible says they never had it. Let me show you what I'm talking about here. Um, actually, before we do that, let me just do one, the thing we talked about just a second ago, Allison. Let me just show you how, for those who do know Him and are walking with Him and looking for His return, His return won't catch us by surprise. Go to, go to a 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Look at what Paul says here as he's dealing with the return of Jesus Christ and the coming of the Lord. He says, Brothers, about times and dates, we don't need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in the darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We don't belong to the night or the darkness. So then let us not be like the others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you're doing. Here as he's talking about the return of Christ and Him coming to the earth, he says, we don't have to write to you about those dates and all that kind of stuff because you know full well it's going to come and surprise the world when they're not expecting it. But it's not going to catch you by surprise. But as, as is inferred in here, He's going to take us ahead of time anyway and... That time's not something for us to be worried about. Because we're not in the dark like the rest of the world. Sad thing is, I'm going to be honest with you, a lot of Christians are kind of still in the dark when it comes to the return of Jesus Christ. And the only reason is, they don't know the Word. They don't know the Scriptures. If you're willing to take the time and study it, it's very clear here what He says about it. But I want you to do something with me and just look real quick. I'm going to show you how Peter knew when his time to go was? How Paul knew when his time to go was? You remember the story of Elijah? And how it was time for him to leave the earth and Elisha wanted to go with him? As everywhere he went, the prophets were saying, you know, your master's going to leave you today. You know, your master's going to leave you today. And, and Elisha kept saying, I know, don't talk about it. But and then Elisha got to see Elijah taken up into heaven. But Elijah even knew when it was his time to go. Go to, go to a sec, Second Peter chapter 1. Somebody read verses one. I'm uh, sorry, verses twelve through fifteen. Second Peter one, verses twelve through fifteen. So I will always remind you of these things, even 
even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Look at verse 13. Look at 14. I know that I will soon put this body aside, he's saying, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you'll always be able to remember these things. He says, I I know that I'm about to go. My time's up. It's pretty amazing. Have you ever thought about Simeon? Remember Simeon waiting in the temple area? Because he had been told by the Lord he wouldn't die until he had seen the promised Christ. There's a, there's a pattern here that those of us who are His, who are walking with Him and looking for His return, He gives us a heads up. Again, we don't know the day. We don't know the hour. I've heard one man jokingly say, I don't, I don't need to know when I'm going to die. I just want to know where. So I can just stay away from that place, is what he said. But, but we don't have to worry about it. He, he gives us a heads up. Go to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Somebody else read for us. 2 Timothy chapter 4. But I want you to read verses 1 through 8. Because in his instructions to Timothy, uh, there's something kind of neat that he says. So read 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. But look at it slowly. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of His appearing and His kingdom, I give you this charge. I'm going to stop you real quick. Before he gives them the charge, what is the precipitating the charge? In view of... The kingdom. Yes. The presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, in view of what? His appearing. With His coming in mind. I want you to always be... He's talking to Timothy, a pastor of this church. He says, I want you to be doing everything you do with an, in mind the coming of Jesus Christ. Everything we need to be doing as Christians need to, needs to be with an understanding that He's coming. He's going to be reckoning with us. He's going to come, whether it's for us individually or whether it's for the church as a whole. Don't get all caught up in that stuff, but just know that He is coming. Keep that in mind. Won't that affect how you live if you daily live with a view of His appearing? Now listen to His charge and love what He says. Verse 2, Preach the Word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires... They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. At the end of his letter, he says, Oh, and by the way, it's time for me to go. I know that I'm going to be leaving this earth soon. Now, again, we didn't know if that was a day, a month, a year. It most likely was a couple of years later. But he knew that he was coming to the end. 
It's interesting, if you were to look at Philippians, and don't turn there now, but if you look at Philippians chapter 1, Paul wrestled at one point in this jail whether or not he was going to be dying at that point. And he said, I don't know whether or not I'm going to die and go on and be with Christ. And, and I'm torn between the two. He said, because I'd, I'd like to go be with Christ because that would be really cool. And, but if I stay here, I'll, it means more fruitful labor that I'll be rewarded for. And I don't really know which I want. But then by the end of that whole con- con- conversation, he says, and I think God's just shown me that I'm going to be staying here for you. But at this point in his life, this is the last book he wrote, he said, it's time for me to go. So, when going back to Revelation chapter 3, when God says to the church in Sardis, wake up. And if you don't wake up, I'm going to come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I'll come to you. Is he talking to the believers in the church, or is he talking to the unbelievers? talking to the unbelievers. And then the next verse proves that even more. Yet, verse 4, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot his name out from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In this message to the church in Sardis, there were those in the church who weren't born again. But he's forever calling out to them to say, please respond. Please respond. Oh, by the way, didn't he do that to Judas right up to the end? I don't know if many of you have ever looked at it, but if you put the Gospels together, you realize when he washed their feet in the upper room, he washed Judas' feet too. But then Judas went off to do what he was going to do. And even in the garden... When he came, he said, Friend, why have you come? Giving him opportunity right up to the last moment to repent and to put his faith in it. Now, is it our job to go find out who in our church is saved and who's not? No. But I will tell you, as you've heard me say before, this is one of the reasons why I'm not real fond of congregational government. A lot of churches like to have their congregational government where everybody gets their vote. The problem is, as we've already just touched on, And it's very even more clear that many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this and didn't I do that? And I'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. It's very clear in the Scriptures that in the last days there will be many in the church who really aren't saved. They don't have the Spirit of God. And if they don't have the Spirit of God, they're not able to hear God. Yet in our congregational government, we give everybody an equal vote when we seek the will of God just because they're a member. And if you've been in church any length of time, you've seen... Some things that are pretty ungodly in business meetings, have you not? The Bible actually teaches that there should be leadership that has been proven to be spiritually mature over a period of time, and they should be the ones who are leading what goes on in the church. I'm not saying the body doesn't know or doesn't have a, 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 an input, but the actual vote. I was dealing with this one church up in Virginia who was moving from congregational government to another type of leadership, which the Bible teaches, but we're afraid of because we don't want everybody to have a certain group of men to have the power, you know, which shows our lack of a trust in a big God. We think these group of guys can supersede God. But I was dealing with this one church, and they were trying to move from congregational government to another type of leadership, and uh, uh, this one person told me, he said, ah, I'm just a little bit scared. And I said, well... Let me tell you a passage in Thessalonians where it says, Respect those who are over you in the Lord. I said, in your method right now of congregational government, where everybody has an equal vote, uh, who's over you in the Lord? And he goes, oh, the pastor is. 
I said, give me a break. The way you've got to set it up, you can vote him out tomorrow. Who's over you? They said, nobody. But now, because of the fact there are men out there that we don't want in leadership, we quickly come up with ways that we can protect ourselves from each other. But like we touched on last week at the end of the lesson, the dead churches are the ones that are run by the rules and the regulations and the policies, not by the Spirit of God. Can men abuse any kind of a model? Sure. But if we actually want to be faithful to the Word of God and to, to, to what He wants, why don't we give His Word a try? Why don't we move in the direction of what He has in mind? And that's just a little commercial. We'll leave it at that for now. But let's deal with what we've been looking forward to deal with, this whole blotting out of the book of life. And by the way, you're going to find this answer a lot more in-depth than you expected. I'm going to tell you right now. So you might want to get a piece of paper, and you might want to take some notes here, because I'm going to give you a lot of scriptures dealing with this topic. Because I have in front of me here five pages of notes, and what we just covered was only three-quarters of the first page. The rest of this is what we're going to deal with, but we will be able to get it done in time. So, Alright? Here he says, I will never blot out his name from the book of life. Now there's a lot of options as to what this means then. Okay? The first option is, is that this could mean that through disobedience people can lose their salvation. As Jesus could take their names out of the book of life. There are those that take this and they say, see, he threatens to blot their name out of the book of life by saying that he's not going to blot these people's names out. It's inferred that he's going to blot some people's names out. Therefore, that means people can lose their salvation because he was writing to the church. Let me just say, as you hopefully heard from me over and over again, never take one verse of Scripture that might be a little unclear and try to build any kind of a doctrine that doesn't match up with the whole of Scripture. As you look at the whole of Scripture... Scripture is very clear that if you have received the Spirit of God upon your salvation, you will never, ever lose the Spirit of God. He will finish what He started. And let me just take you to one verse that is, is a neat one that illustrates it, not one I've shared with you earlier. It's in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. Sorry, not 2 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Listen to verses 3 and following. I want you to see this. I've memorized it because it's one of the neatest passages of Scripture to make you feel good. So I memorize a lot of those. It says, Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, but these trials have come so that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Here's a perfect picture of that person who was the seed landed on good soil. Because even though trouble came and trials have come, even though there have been things in your life that made you say, well, if God really is for me, why did this happen? But you're still here and you're still believing. That's because what happened in you is real. It's proved your faith genuine. But look at how he describes your salvation there. 
Descendant to an inheritance, verse 4, that can what? Never what? Can never perish. It means you can't lose your salvation. It will never die. It won't even spoil. It won't even fade. It won't be like, well, I gave you a salvation and you're still going to be heaven, but now you're going to get less of what you were promised. No. It won't spoil. It won't fade. And who's keeping it? Christ. It's kept in heaven by God, right? So, can you do something to lose your salvation? No. You can't. So, this blotting out of the book of life can't be referring to someone losing their salvation. Doesn't that, verse 5, doesn't that imply that it's your faith, continual faith, that entitles you to that inheritance? Uh, again, would you look at the Scripture? Who gives us the faith? Who seals our faith? Yeah, but I'm saying, if you're taking it to your continual faith, well, what if I don't have faith anymore? That will never happen to a true believer of the Lord. Yeah, and I, I, mm-hmm. I agree right. with you there. Right. Mm-hmm. And this may be a better discussion after. Go for it. There's the, the, the parable of the sower. Mm-hmm. And you actually touched on it earlier where you said the rock is slow or it springs up but it had no roots, so the title was a false convert. Yeah. It, was a it wasn't real phrase, conversion. Phrase you used. Right. But, you know, we've, we've been taught as I can remember, right? You're sealed at the moment of salvation. The Holy Spirit's on you then. Yes. How can that happen to someone? Who it doesn't happen. No, I'm saying is. But if they believe they were a convert and they spring up, that's because they, in, in their mind or whatever, they think that it's real, right? I think that and there, are, said, yes, there are there are those who was there a are, true believer in his mind. Judas, in his mind, was a true believer, but in his mind, what was his definition of Jesus, the Messiah? He thought it was an earthly king. When he so came to he realize, saw that difference, that's when he decided, you know what, no, this guy isn't for me. That's right. And I understand that. But mm-hmm. at the beginning, mm-hmm. in his mind, he thought, this is the guy. Right. right. But, so, it's, but God knows our hearts. I understand that. So, but, so I wrestle with mm-hmm. that. You know, if the person truly thinks, yeah, that's the guy, that's, I, I understand it, I believe it, whatever... And then, well, see, here's the thing. I think they don't necessarily. I think we can fool ourselves at times as well. The Bible teaches. The Bible says, "Don't let our hearts." The Bible says, "Don't let our hearts judge ourselves," because we we're we're not honest with ourselves. Right. I think the thing is, the issue is, and it goes back down to the heart of the person. And how we're going to know? It's going to be over time. And so, is it possible for someone to have fooled themselves? Yes, I think it is. Right. Someone thinks they believe. But then they found out they really didn't. You get the, mm-hmm. you get the thief on the cross. Mm-hmm. There's no time. Right. But at the same time, he had already been given a promise. By word for word by Jesus, you'll be in paradise. But only because he believed. Right. We have no idea if, you know, going down... I mean, actually, I, for family. myself, I don't even question my own. He didn't have any more time to do anything different but go. This is a good that's thing. That's true. Yeah. Right. You know? But I, I, I do wrestle with... Uh, it's hard for us to wrestle with the fact of... Is it possible that I, I really thought I believed, but now I might not? Because then we sit there and we, and we examine ourselves over and over. And What I tell people is this. Um, the Bible says, if I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'll be saved. Right? Well, if I could believe anymore, I would. I believe. Now, the Bible also says what? Don't go. Stay. Sure. Oh, and, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, and, it's, so, and, and, I, and it's, the Scripture just says it's through your faith that it shows evidence of that gift of salvation. But again, that faith is also, as we look at it, it's been given to us by God. Agreed. There's there's some elements there that that seem contradictory. 
right? If they the, may if seem it's it. You're sealed at the moment of conversion. If it's a true conversion. But if you, so, but if the person believes that it is, but does it, the man he can fool himself. He might have fooled him. Yeah. Well, someone to know that. Well, I think the spirit of God. If, I, if, 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 if this, well, if you have a false conversion and you fooled yourself and you think you're okay, right. don't you think the spirit of God is going to be saying, "No, you're not." I would think so. Well, I can guarantee you, Becky's dad is a perfect example of it. He prayed a prayer when he was four years old. Right. He actually lived his life trying to be a good Christian. And the neat thing about God was God continually sought him out. And at 48 years old, God got a hold of him. It wasn't in the church service. It wasn't under some evangelist saying, you better watch out or you might not be saved. It was simply alone in Alaska. And the Spirit of God said, oh, by the way, uh, I don't care the fact that you've been to a Christian college. I don't care you've been a deacon in the church forever. You don't know me. And alone in Alaska, God got a hold of him. So for that person who fools themselves, the loving Father will keep helping them see it. As He kept calling out to Judas. He kept calling out to Judas. And I absolutely agree with that. Right. And so, in that situation, if that person believes, we're going to be fooled. And they even may be fooled. The neat thing is, is God doesn't. And the Bible teaches that if you've even fooled yourself, God will keep wooing you. But, how are we going to ever really know? Time's going to, for us, it's going to, time's going to give evidence of it. You know? So, it can't be it's, it's obvious that this passage can't be talking about someone losing their salvation. So let's go to another option. Okay? Some say this is a literary device called the litote. Alright? I had to look it up too. Alright? But a, a, a litote is a literary device where you, an assertion is made by denying the opposite. Okay? For example, if I said to you, man, we had a storm last night and it was no small storm. What have I just said about the storm? It was a big one. I made an assertion by denying the opposite. Some say that this is a light tote, a literary device where you make an assertion that they won't lose their salvation by denying that you won't have it blotted out. You know, that's some people's, it's a small number. We're going to throw that one out anyway, so don't, let's not wrestle with that one too long. Okay? Now, another option, which is similar to that, is that there's a double negative going on here, or an emphatic negation. All right? In other words, I will never, ever, no, never blot out their name. See, because believers had already been promised that if they believed, their names would be written in the book of life. They'd be written in heaven. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Put a bookmark here and go to Luke chapter 10. Somebody read verses 17 through 24. Luke 10, verses 17 through 20. The seventeen returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Alright, so the scripture had already said that if you believe, your name would be written in heaven. So, now some are saying this is an emphatic negation, saying that they don't have to worry, they won't have their name blotted out. It's just, again, an assertion through a really strong double negative, if you will. 
Again, I don't think that's what this is either, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. There's a fourth option. Some people see this as similar to the citizen registers of the Old Testament era and the Greek and Roman era. All right? Uh, in, in, the, in the Old Testament era and the Greek and Roman world, uh, whenever anybody was born, their names were written in a register. All right? Whenever they died, their name was erased. Okay? I think we're getting closer now to what's going on here, and I'll show you scripturally why. We're going to look at a lot of scriptures in a little bit here. But each citizen of was put in the register of birth and erased at death, and the assumption here is that since all living people are in the book, genuine believers will remain in the book, while those with empty professions will be blotted out. I think we're getting closer here, and let me show you scripturally why I believe that. But in order to do that, let's lay the groundwork of the fact that there is a book. All right? Uh, we've already seen Luke 10.20, where it says... Um, uh, your name's written in heaven. Uh, someone want to take Hebrews 12, 22 through 24? Just raise your hand because we're going to have you read different verses to keep things moving. Hebrews you got Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. You're going to read that one for us? Sure. Someone read Daniel 12, verse 1. Heck, you got that one? Somebody else want to read Philippians 4, 2 through 3? You got that one? Thank you. All right, and someone else want to read Revelation 20? Verse 15, you get that one, thank you. And someone else, Revelation 21, 27. Going once, going twice. Yours was Revelation 20, verse 15. Revelation 21, verse 27. You got that one, Chris? Chris has got that one. All right. Now, I want you to deal, we're going to lay the foundation first. Again, we're going to come up with an interpretation of this passage by studying the Holy Scripture as much quickly as we can in this short time, that they're, first of all, their names are written in heaven. So, um, Hebrews 12, 22-24, listen to what it says. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. All right, here in that passage, her translation as it's referring to those believers of the church that are in heaven, it's just, they're described as being enrolled in heaven. Other translations say names written in heaven, but you get the idea. You're enrolled. You know, and so you try to enroll people in Sunday school, what do you do? You know, can we enroll you in our Sunday school class? All you're doing is getting their name written down in your role. Doesn't mean they're going to show up, unfortunately, and that's a bad illustration, but, <laughs> but they, they were enrolled. So, alright, someone else, Daniel 12.1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of the nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Alright, again, passage that shows there is a book where people's names are written in, and those people are going to be spared. Alright? Um, Philippians 4, verses 2 and 3. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Sintesh to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Again, another evidence that there is a book and people are written in it. All right. Now, the next two in Revelation, 
chapter 20, verse 15, you're going to see in verse 21, verse 27, that show that not only are these written in the book of life, uh, but they also, these people will avoid the second death and enter the new Jerusalem. So go ahead and read verse 20, verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All right, and 2127? And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Again, referring to the city of the New Jerusalem is what he's talking about, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And we'll deal with that addition of the word Lamb's Book of Life in just a second, but stick with me for now. We've got the foundation laid, hopefully, that there is a book where people's names are recorded in, and if their names are in this book, and stay in this book, as you're about to see, they get to go to heaven. All right? God's got, he's keeping track. He's got them enrolled, enrolled if you will. Now, the issue is not that there is there a book of life. The issue is the possibility of being taken out of it. Is there, be a, is there a possibility of being taken out of the book of life? Well, I'm going to show you that scripturally, yes. Stick with me here. Stick with me. Look at what it says in Exodus 32. Nope, 32. Verses 31 and 30 through 33. Here's a situation where Moses has been on the mountain with God. And uh, while he's been up there, the Israelites made the golden calf. And when they come down, God's kind of upset with them. And look at what Moses says. He said, so Moses, verse 31 of chapter 32, he went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. He says, if you're not going to forgive them, take my name out. Now, does that remind you of anything? What does that remind you of? We read it in the book of Romans in our study of Romans. What did Paul say? I wish I could be blotted out so the Jews would be saved. Yeah, he said, if it were possible for me to go to hell to save the Jews, I'd do it. He cared that much about the people that he was willing to die so that they wouldn't go to hell. Go ahead. It doesn't mean that it's possible. It's Not yet. Not yet. Right. Very true. But now, keep reading. Alright. The Lord replied, verse 33, to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. And Lord, the use of Lord there is covenant Lord. Yes. Yahweh. Yep. The Lord replied to Moses. Now keep that in mind. Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Alright? Now, let's go to Psalm 69. This is an incredible, incredible chapter uh, in the book of Psalms. And you're going to want to read it later on, the whole thing for yourself. Because as I read to you, I could easily just go to the one verse that shows what we're talking about. But as I just kept looking about where to get started, I kept going back further and further and further. We're going to get to verse 28. Stick with me. But there's so much here in Psalm 69 that I want you to see what's going on here. David is writing here, and he says, Save me, O God, Psalm 69, verse 1, for, for, waters, for the waters have come up to my neck, and I sink in the miry depths where there's no foothold. I have come into the deep waters, the floods engulf me, I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me, I am forced to those who seek to destroy me. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. You know my folly, O God. My guilt is not hidden from you. 
May those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me, O Lord, the Lord Almighty. May those who seek you not be put to shame because of me, O God of Israel. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's own mother's sons. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song of drunkards. But I pray to you, O Lord, in the time of your favor. In your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Do not let the floodwaters engulf me, or the depths swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Redeem me because of my foes. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. My, the, may the table set before them become a snare. May it become a retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs bent forever. Put, pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents, for they persecute those you wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. Now, if you know anything about Scripture, you might have noticed that you actually heard at least three very familiar references that are referenced in the New Testament. The course the, they give gall and, and gall in my food and give me vinegar for my thirst is very much talking about Jesus on the cross. We also see earlier in this passage where he says, for zeal for your house consumes me. When was that referenced in the New Testament? Remember what? Something that Jesus did. What did he do? Scourge the temple. When he cleaned the temple out with the whip, and his, his disciples said, Whoa, now it makes sense. And they quoted this verse Zeal for your house consumes me. There's also another one here where it says, May his place may their place be deserted, and there be no one to dwell in their tents. No one to dwell in it. That's one of the passages that Peter referenced when he realized from Scripture that Judas needed to be replaced, but what he also talked about was the place where he fell headlong, and it was sold as a piece of land, and it became a desolate place. Peter referenced that passage right there as well. In this passage where David is calling out in his agony as he's being treated unfairly, in the midst of it, prophecy comes out of his mouth, and he doesn't even realize it at the time, probably. But what he also says there is, may, in verse 28, may they be blotted out of the book of life and not listed with the righteous. I think in Revelation chapter 3 when Jesus says, I won't blot their names out, I believe that He is also showing that there are those He does blot out. But see, the reason we struggle with it is because we see the book of life in its final form. And when we picture Him blotting someone out of it in its final form, it will cause you theological problems. But I think if you look at Scripture, the book of life is a lot similar to what we just looked at in the Old Testament picture and in the Greek and Roman world where there was in God's world if you will there is a book of life and everyone who lives everyone who's born everyone who's conceived I'm going to put it that way because I believe life begins at conception everyone who's conceived is put into God's book of life 
We have, during whatever length of time our life is, the opportunity to say yes to Jesus Christ, the covering for our sins. If we say yes to Him, what happens to us in the eyes of God? If you're not sure, go to 1 John chapter 5, verse 24. Someone read 1, not 1 John, John 5, verse 24. And then while you're turning there, someone else turn to John chapter 11, verse 25. John 5, 24, and John 11, verse 25. Someone read John 5, 24, good and loud for us. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. When we say yes to Jesus Christ in salvation and he gives us his spirit, what happens? We pass from death to to life. Now keep that in mind. Listen to John 11, verse 25. Jesus is speaking to Martha right now, by the way, outside the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he, di- and even though he dies. Keep reading. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. He Je- who believes this. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. Actually, he says, he will live even though he dies. But then he goes on and says, they'll never die. In the eyes of God, are you going to ever die if no. you're a child of God? No. Your physical body, Your physical body is going to go back to the dust of the earth from which it came. But you know when those of you that had babies, with your children alive when they came out of the womb, or were they alive in the womb? Yes. Yeah. So they just passed from one world to another, a world that they had known for about nine months, but they didn't die, and then they continued living. They just moved into the bigger, better world. This is a picture of us passing from this life to the next. That's why Stephen, when he was being stoned, was able to see heaven. He, he said, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And, and those who died, the, the, Jesus, when He comes to get them, we just pass from this world to the next. You'll never die. Your physical body may stop working. You know, it's already many of us slowing down as it is. But you're not going to die. In the eyes of God, a child of God who's been born again has, even though Warren Wearsby puts it this way, he says that the book of life contains names of all the living. The wicked as well as the righteous. When a person professes true saving faith in Christ, though, their names become permanent. Never to be blotted out. Right? (laughs) Well, it, it, it just somehow will never be blotted out now when you become a child of God. So, the book of life, does it contain believers and unbelievers? The Bible seems to teach that it does. But it is possible for your name to be blotted out if you don't profess faith in Jesus Christ. Now, part of the reason why we have a struggle, some people would say, Jim, I don't know. That sounds like something I'm not comfortable with because isn't the book of life also called the Lamb's book of life? Correct? It is? So this is what's also given us trouble because, wait a minute, Jim, if the book of life is the Lamb's book of life, you're saying people could be blotted out, the people that would be in the Lamb's book of life are going to be blotted out? No, stick with me. Stick with me here. There are those that teach that there are two books. Tim LaHaye is one of them. In his book, uh, Revelation Unveiled, he believes there's two books. 
Personally, I disagree, but it's okay to disagree with Tim Lay. I love a lot of the stuff he does and can't wait until he comes in town uh, next month. But at the same time, he teaches that there's a book of life, and once you and, and everybody's in it, the wicked and the righteous, and then when you say yes to Jesus Christ, your name is taken from that look book and put in the Lamb's book. Could be. It doesn't appear in Scripture that there's two different books. But there are two times that the book of life is referenced as the Lamb's book of life. And I'm going to show you where they are. Um, they're in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, and Revelation 21, verse 7. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, it says, All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life, beginning to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Okay? Alright? And we also have... In Revelation 21, verse 7, it says, Oop, I, I wrote the wrong verse down in my 21, notes here. 21, 27. There we go. Thank you. It, it's described as, the, as nothing impure will ever enter and everything. And nor, it's talking about New Jerusalem. Nor will anyone whose name, who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. What I want to suggest to you, and I think this is an accurate statement, is the book of life at the time of the judgment, when God settles everything, those whose names are left in the book of life are who? Those who have said yes. And you can call it the Lamb's book of life at that time because all those who are in it are because of the Lamb. It is now the Lamb's book of life. If there are two two books, like Tim LaHaye says, where you're, you know everybody's names are in this one book, and when they die, their names are blotted out if they haven't said yes to Jesus. But at the moment they say yes, their name's now written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Possibility. I believe, from my understanding of Scripture, there's one book. It's called the Book of Life. But it's references the Lamb's Book of Life at the end end when those who are in it at this point are the ones who have said yes to Jesus Christ. You could look at it as the ones that say yes as in the final Yes, in the final revision. I love that. I love that. That's awesome. In the final revision, which is called the Lamb's Book of Life, the only ones in it will never have ever been blotted out and can't be blotted out. There won't be life without. There won't be life without him. Exactly. No one's righteous without him anyway, so there couldn't be another book of righteous and unrighteous. Exactly. And so, when their name is blotted out, it's when there is no hope. They are dead, dead. Right. They're physically dead, totally spiritually dead. Their opportunities done, and there are so are people blotted out of the book of life. It appears that there are those blotted out of the book of life, but we've always thought that the book of life only had the names of those who were saved. As you look at the whole of Scripture, it appears that there are those who are going to have their names blotted out. The book of life might just contain the book of all the living. But if you say yes to Jesus Christ, you'll never die, and your name will never be blotted out, and you pass from death to life. And you're in the final revision. I love that, Neil. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life, and it's all because of him. It's a lot of wrestling, but it's a passage that's given a lot of people cause to pause, if you will. Hopefully that's helped a little bit to wrestle with that passage tonight. And uh, Anybody want to ask any questions or deal with anything before we wrap up? I still have problems with Jim Hunter's experience. If he had died before he came to realize that he wasn't saved, no, actually, he'll, he'll tell you he didn't know he was. But he he told us. Told 
yeah, but though there came a point in his life where he says he started to realize something was up. It wasn't that at that moment in Alaska where he said, whoa. He said there's a difference between doubting you're saved and knowing you're lost. There's a difference. Satan will cause us all to question whether or not we're saved. Are you, if you're a believer, you've been through it. Satan works you over left and right. You gotta, that's why you put on the helmet of salvation and seal it up tight so the enemy can't attack you there. But there's a difference between thinking, uh, doubting whether or not you're saved and knowing you're lost. There's a big difference. And going back to what you were talking about, that's why in 2 Peter chapter 1, the Bible says to make your calling and election sure. Right. And so he says, you've had this, add to it. This, 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 and this. If you're truly saved, you'll be able to add those things to it because the Spirit of God is there giving you the grace to be able to do those things. If you're not, you'll find out soon enough. But if you just want to sit there and say, well, I prayed a prayer, I think I'm going to heaven, and stay there, you could fool yourself and you could end up lost. But if someone has fooled themselves, but they're faithful to apply the Scriptures, which say, okay, you say you're saved, that's good. To make your calling election sure, I'll even read it to you. It's 2 Peter chapter 1. Let me show you what it says here. It says, uh, His divine power has given us everything we need, verse 3, for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him, who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these He's given us His very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, Make every effort. Now it's on us, okay? To add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone doesn't have them, he's nearsighted and blind, has forgotten that he's been past, cleansed from past sins. Therefore, my brothers... Be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall. And you'll receive a rich welcome into the, uh, rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So for those people that you would say might have fooled themselves, I really think I was saved. The scripture says that's good. But shouldn't we as Christians be seeking to know the Lord better? Grow in our relationship? Not stay as babes that are drinking the milk? We, it's on us. If we, so we can't say, well, that's not fair. The person thought they were saved. Well, did they sit around sucking their thumb? Or did they try to read the Word? Try to apply the Word? Are they, were, they, were they making sure that they really had the Spirit of God? Well, yeah, you've got to walk a fine line, though. It's, it's not a, a faith by work. That's no, no, no. But no. the works are a result of the Spirit working through your but life. Listen, you give you're right, but take that list, though. Take that list that's there. How many of you could do that on your own anyway? You can't. That's the, that's the whole and point. I know that's the point. But that's even, the point. even in that passage, though, mm-hmm. and I'm not trying to sound argumentative. It, it's all right. But even in that passage, though, it, in verse 9, it says, For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from mm-hmm. his former sins, which implies that he was purified. Right. How would you have been purified if you hadn't truly accepted that? Well, again, that, that lacking one isn't talking about every single person that's being referenced in this passage. He's saying, in my understanding of it, he's saying, look, if you don't have these things, if you're saved, you don't understand what you've received, get going. But it's a good way to find out if you really are, because, let me give you an example. We always see at weddings this passage, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. I always kind of cringe personally when that passage is read at weddings if the people really don't know the Lord. Because you know what I know, 
You can't do it. Unless Jesus is in you and allowed to have control, you can't even do You can't live like that. I think this is the same kind of a thing where Peter's saying, look, you got salvation? That's great. Now, make every effort to add these things. In the effort, you're going to find, I can't, I don't. That may be one of the ways God shows you that He has not truly been born again. Then it wasn't saved is what you're saying. There are going to be those that are going to find out they weren't saved. There are going to be those who... What I'm getting at is, this is how you'll know the Spirit of God is showing you whether or not He's there or not. Of course, we all know I can't do these things, but God's Spirit will begin to produce them in me when I allow Him to. But if I sit there and try to allow God to produce these things in me and I don't have the Spirit, it's still not going to happen. Of course. Right. That's what I'm trying to I get at. I just wonder how many people have unwittingly been deceived into thinking that they're saved because they've been taught. Well, I walk All you got to do is accept the gift and believe it. And Now you're going start. down a road that is a very important one. You're actually hitting on to a really big key. That's part of the problem is, is the teaching of the Gospel has been a bad teaching of and the really Gospel. Great. And really great. And, well, yes. because and, and you know, as you say, you shouldn't look at one verse and, and, and out of context with the whole of Scripture. I believe also you can't look at one moment of a person's life can't. as a measure of their entire life. But that kind of flies in the face of the sealed at the moment of, of acceptance, and you're redeemed right then. You're sealed in the book of life from the time you accept, because really it's in arrears. It seems like. Well, see, salvation is a point and a process, which is why it's hard for us. But do you not agree that the Bible teaches at the moment of conversion, at the moment you do get saved, that at that moment you're sealed? I do believe that it teaches that. Yes. But... So do you believe it, or do you believe it teaches that? Well, (laughs) this is where I run into the problem. Okay, Because if you're sealed at the moment of... And I know it's more than just praying a prayer. I understand. It's not by works. It's not by any... You know, human action is by just accepting a free gift of salvation. Yep. Believing that Jesus is your Lord and has redeemed your sins. But yet, a lot of the scriptures we read tonight where it says, He who believes mm-hmm. will be saved, will not, will not be blotted out, believes. It's not past tense, it's present tense, right? Which implies that it's a continual believing throughout life. If it's if it's a real conversion. I get what I'm getting at is, First you said before, it's a point and, and a, it's a and process. process. Right. Yeah. So, but, but I think a lot of people have been taught, and, and maybe even myself taught. have been taught at times that that point is the only part of it that matters. Right. Not, not, been, not that you shouldn't strive for better, let the Holy Spirit take control of your life and turn your life over to But they've been taught the fire but insurance. If you check the box, the dotted line, then that's at least sufficient. You might not have a penthouse suite in the <laughs> kingdom, but you're in the door, right? Yeah. And, and I think a lot of people believe that to be. Enough. Enough. And if it's not enough, then one, there's a whole heck of a lot of people that have been truly deceived. But two, then you start to wrestle with, well, it's not by work, so, but it's not mm-hmm. a check-a-box moment in time either. So, you know, there's a fine line there. This is where I can rest in Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, where God says, the word that goes out from my mouth will not return void. It will accomplish everything I set out for it to accomplish. Right. The neat thing is, there are people out there that are preaching the wrong thing, teaching the wrong thing, and I even myself might have done it a time or two. The good thing about a big, awesome, sovereign God is He's going to still get His stuff done. And if for some reason I have been deceived, 
My loving Father is going to seek me out to keep telling me. I still have a decision whether I'm going to say yes or no. But if someone's taught me a lie, if someone's fooled me, if I've deceived myself into believing and thinking I'm saved and I'm not, God will still kill, still do His work to get me where He wants me and seek me out. Now again, I still will have a choice whether I say yes or no. And so in these situations, that's why throughout all of Scripture you keep reading these. Is He writing to Christians or non-Christians here? You know? And did you read in I didn't even touch on it in Revelation I'm sorry Romans chapter 13 did you notice what he said to those he was calling Christians so let's uh, not have orgies did you ever think about that Somebody we always read over that you know here he's writing to these people saying wake up listen to what he says he says it's time to wake up from your slumber the day is almost here so let's put aside the deeds of darkness writing to quote unquote Christians some yes I'm gonna have to say some no so Let's, uh, let's put on the armor of light. Let's behave decently in the daytime. Not in orgies. Not in drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and debauchery. And not in dissension and jealousy, which unfortunately our churches are full of today. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and don't think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. All through Hebrews, the Hebrew writer is talking about this great salvation we've received. And there are those who are thinking about going back. And you'll find at least four times a very stern warning to those who might have fallen short of it. And that's why in Hebrews we think you could lose your salvation in chapter 6, it appears, you know, those who have once tasted all that, because of the fact that there is this, like you say, issue that's out there, that there are those who think they are and they're not. But God will get you to see what you need to see. I believe everyone will find out. Now, just because in Matthew it says, did those people say, Lord, Lord. We automatically assume that they truly believe that they are okay. Is there a chance that they knew, but they were still hoping that their efforts were enough? We don't know. But we've always read it like they were caught totally by surprise. Wait a minute, Lord, Lord. Didn't we? Didn't we? Is there a chance that they knew, but they were hoping that all their hard work or things they had done for God was enough? Or worse, that they, they might have had that inkling in their mind, but some pastor somewhere told me that as long as I prayed that prayer, then I'm okay. Yep. Yeah. But but God Himself throughout His Word tells you that don't rest on I just prayed the prayer. I know. I know. But I, I think what you're saying in regards to um, even I, I think of a, one experience that I had shortly after I was um, had accepted the Lord, and it was three years later before I actually had a baptism because I didn't believe if if I I believed that as a growing up as a Catholic I was sprinkled on. And if I invalidated that um, baptism, that meant that all my family members were, in fact, not, you know, they were, yeah. And and I couldn't even, I wrestled with it. And fortunately, I had some people that were very patient in this church in Maine that this pastor and associate pastor that worked with me over a year and just helped for me to understand it. But then this person, an elder, came into the picture and I was getting ready to get on a plane to go to Hawaii. And I was wrestling with this. And he said, you need to be baptized before you get on that plane. Because if you don't get baptized, <laughs> and if that plane crashes, you're going straight to hell. <laughs> and I didn't have time to speak to anybody else. And I was so devastated because I was hungering so much in my early part of my um, salvation experience. And God, and I just started bawling my eyes out. I got on the plane, and I didn't really know what to do. I was so distraught about it. And God brought somebody that sat next to me in the plane 
told me about the man on the cross that was next to Jesus. He was you know, baptized. And he wasn't baptized. And, you know, and I was seeking him out. And the point is, I'm saying, in, in reiterating what you were saying, that if you truly have a hunger for the Lord, that he's not going to put you down the road that will bring you to destruction and total deceit. He will correct that. If he's done all he's done with Jesus long before we've been born, don't you think he's going to finish by drawing us to him? How many of you were saved early in life and there were periods that you might have walked away? But you couldn't stay away. How come? Because what he starts, he'll finish. And I honestly believe that there are those who think they're okay who are going to find out they're not. But I think they'll find out before death. I believe the Spirit of God will continue to tell them where they really are. Well, and I witnessed my next-door neighbor who was Catholic, and she prayed the prayer to become a Christian. But I have never been able to lead her any further. <laughs> can't get her to go to meetings, can't get her to go to church, can't get her into discussions. I've handed her books. Um, so in that instance, what do you have to do? You have to say, Lord... Do it. She, exactly. She's in your hands. Yeah. You can't. You can't do anything well, else. So we kind of have to do that with ourselves. This whole yeah. passage you read, and where it says, "Make every effort to add," from Second Peter one. Like we were saying, you can't. It's not. I'm not capable. I can't do that. So we have to daily yield ourselves and just go, "Okay, Lord, you know I have no more patience. You've got to give me yours." And you just have to ask the Lord to finish the work, like first. Like Philippians one six says, Lord, I trust you're going to finish the work. Yeah, Lord, I trust you're going to finish the work. I am making the effort to allow you to finish that work in my life. And as you just quoted John six forty four, no one can come to me. Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws them. The pastor I once had said that a lot of times. Well, folks, this is good. They're actually wrestling with the scriptures. That's good. That's a good thing. Now, don't keep them closed till next Tuesday. Go wrestle with them some more. Keep reading ahead. We're going to start with deal with Philadelphia next week. Philadelphia is a fun one to study. They don't get spanked. Philadelphia doesn't get spanked, so next week will be kind of fun. <laughs> Let me pray for us. Father, again, thank you for this chance to gather together. And thank you for the fact that, uh, that your word will will deal with all these things we wrestle with, and even things we may never understand till we get there. Uh, the neat thing is, is you promise that you you'll get your stuff done. But Lord, at the same time, may each of us here, and I know it's your desire, get to that place where we know we're yours, and then we each day not be just content with the fact that we're going to heaven. May we be willing each day to get to know you more. May like Paul, we say, forgetting what is behind and pressing on towards what is ahead. I want to know Christ. Lord, may that be our desire as well. And as we looked at tonight, may we be looking for your return, the fact that you're coming and your reward is with you. And Lord, if you come and get us all in the rapture, I'm pretty sure about everybody in this room would say that'd be good. But Lord, you have a reason why, and there are others you're drawing. So Lord, today... We just simply say we love you, and uh, we thank you for the fact that your word is still working in our lives. And thank you that you'll get us where you want us to be. We pray this in your name. Amen.